This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Remnant Radio. I've got Pastor Mike Winger on the other line. We are going to be discussing the Passion Translation. It's going to be an interesting conversation. Uh, Mike's been doing a lot of work on the Passion Translation, and as he's digging more and more into it, he's got other scholars working on this. Uh, A lot of stuff is coming to light. We want to share it with you today. Before we do that, we want to let you know uh, what Remnant Radio is, what we do. Uh, We are a theology broadcast. We interview pastors and teachers from different churches and denominations from a wide range of theological groups. many of which we disagree with, uh, some of which we do agree with, but our goal is to kind of suspend our presuppositions, study God's Word, and learn from our Christian brothers uh, who might be in a different theological echo chamber than us. Uh, to my left, your right, I have Pastor Michael Roundtree. Uh, Mike and Mike. It's going to be an interesting show. Can. It's uh, going to be good. Uh, tell, us, tell us, man, uh, some of the stuff we've come out with recently. Uh, well, we just spent a week with Elijah Stevens from Bethel Church, and he teaches in their kind of apologi- apologetics, theology uh, department of the Supernatural School of Ministry. And so uh, it was great. We got to bring up a lot of objections, teaching objections, like just kind of like doctrinally related. Also, uh, just the practice is some of the strange kind of practices that uh, get get a lot of criticism. And so we were able to just kind of ask him point blank a lot of those questions and um and so it was just, I think, helpful for our viewers to be able to discern and to kind of sift through from somebody uh, who is right there. That in is the close to the horse's mouth. Uh, yeah, not quite. <laughs> we, we'd love to get Bill Johnson or Chris uh, Valentin and kind of ask them some of those same questions, hard questions. But uh, anyway, but it, it was a great interview, actually four interviews. And we talked about uh, one of the things we talked about is the NAR, the New yep. Apostolic Reformation, which reminds me we have a great episode coming up. So it's really a month away, coming up early December, but mm-hmm. uh, Holly and Doug, who wrote a book fully dedicated to this subject of the New Apostolic Reformation, and uh, and they're going to join us for a show. So make sure you hit that subscribe button. We have content booked out through into December and just Yeah, we had uh, Jeff lot. Durbin come on. Uh, so when this video is being released, they will have seen the Jeff Durbin episode okay, as well. Sure. So, yeah, or, or it's coming I, out tomorrow. I'm, I'm not really sure how it works yeah, either uh, I, with the scheduling. I know how to go live. I don't know how to do a tape show. Yeah, tape shows are hard. Uh, but on the other line, we have a guy by the name of Mike Winger who has got a awesome YouTube channel. Uh, Pastor yeah, Mike, tell us a little about yourself and your YouTube ministry, uh, how people get connected with your actually two YouTube channels now uh, <laughs> before we dive in to our subject today yeah well i guess i do have two youtube channels now um (laughs) so what i do online is i teach you know theology and apologetics and i just have stockpiled hundreds of hours of content that's all free that just deals with learning how to think biblically about everything so i like to do a lot of research take a topic and then go through it systematically i'd like it to be i want my research to be as high level as possible but i want the explanations of the content to be as accessible as possible so i can be like a bridge for people mm-hmm. to get good content. Um, I'm defending, you know, real Christianity, Bible believing Christians and all that kind of thing. <clears throat> and so, yeah, I, the, the YouTube channel's grown. I think we're at 164,000 subscribers right now, which is blows my mind, blows my mind. Man. It's become my full-time ministry to do this. 
but I've learned a lot of things along the way and tips and strategies and comprehension of YouTube and how it works. And I really want to see more YouTube channels out there. So I started a second channel where I'm just giving tutorials and, and guiding and it's for Christians. This is for evangelical Christians who want to do well on YouTube. Spirit of God convict you where you are. Like, what do you do? Like to like, how do atheists not use your, your content to, to promote, to, to promote atheism? Well, they will. They will. But, yeah. And some of them will. And that's, and that's okay. But, but that's sure. That's the risk you take. But the, the thing is, I'm also going to preach the gospel in those videos. So I'm yeah. like, Hey man, if this helps your YouTube channel, fine. It, it might also help your soul. But you're going to have to sit um, through this for a minute. Yeah. <laughs> but the majority are still going to be the Christians because I'm so niche. I know how YouTube works. I'm so mm -hmm. niche focused on evangelical Christians doing well on YouTube that that will be the majority of my audience. So the net benefit for the kingdom will be fantastic. Yeah. Cool, man. I'm, okay. I'm excited for the conversation. Well, so we're talking about the passion translation yep. of the Bible. And I, I know a lot of Christians have really felt like they've benefited from this. They felt like it's brought them closer to God. And they're, they're going to feel like if we posture ourselves, posture ourselves a certain way, they could feel like what's about to come is going to be some kind of attack. And so how should we posture ourselves as we talk about the Passion Translation? <clears throat> yeah. Hearts, man. People's hearts matter. And we often view things through our hearts. It's as though our eyes are actually down here and we look out through our heart and how we <laughs> feel and it flavors how we see everything. And so a lot of people have a real love for this translation because they feel like it's ministered to them, like it's blessed them, it's helped them. And for those people, I want to, I want to sort of uh, boldly say to you, what is our first commandment? Our first commitment It's to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second, love others as myself. And then I come last. And if I start with me and what has blessed me and what I feel good about, and I, and I, and I make that central to me, then that would keep me trapped in any number of problematic things, bad relationships, bad experiences, as well as even bad religious beliefs, because I'm just in love with the thing that has blessed me. Mm -hmm. So here's a hypothetical for those people. I want you to consider this as we, as we launch into this analysis of the passion translation. And I've got scholars who've analyzed it. I'm going to share what they've said as well. But if, if God's word is being misrepresented, hypothetically, hypothetically, yet I love the misrepresentation, am I actually loving God or am I loving me when I keep holding on to this translation? And I think it's that big of a deal. Am I loving God or me? I mean, what if we're letting God's word be changed because we like the changes? Mm -hmm. Remember Jesus and the Pharisees? They liked the way they were adding to the word of God. And Jesus rips on the Pharisees, as everyone knows. They were adding man's ideas to God's word. And he says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain they worship me, teaching his doctrines the precepts of men. And I'm going to say that the Passion Translation is actually added to the word of God. and has added things that are precepts of men and not of God even. That's an extreme statement. But hypothetically, if that's true, you got to at least consider it and look at it and be willing to say, Lord, my love for you will trump my love for anything that I feel has blessed me because you have blessed me and you're the thing I love the most. So, yeah. So when, when we talk about, um, it, it, when we talk about uh, passion translation, we want to try to be objective. So, so when we uh, talk about the passion translation, we don't want to say, Hey, here are all the areas that it's, it's wrong in, but we want to say that all Bible standards, all Bible translations should fit into some kind of, some kind of guide, some kind of category. So can you help us understand what are the, like the best practices when translating a Bible? And then we'll just compare all Bibles to that and say, okay, the passion translation, does it, does it fit that standard? Hey, Josh, and can I even 
interrupt sure. you yeah. for a moment? Okay, because I feel like we mm-hmm. got to back up a little bit because some of our viewers yeah. don't even know what the passion translation is. Oh, sure. Oh. So maybe you could just tell <laughs> us point. what is the passion translation? Why are we even having this conversation? Yeah, so the Passion Translation is a relatively new Bible translation. It has come on this scene fairly recently, and it's it's still ongoing. It's not done yet. All the New Testament's done. <clears throat> a few books of the Old Testament are done, and more are being done. It's done just by one person. His name is Brian Simmons. And the reason why this translation has, is catching on like wildfire is because it's being promoted by very high-profile leaders in the charismatic movement. So like Bill Johnson um, and other leaders kind of that are in that same camp, they, many of them have endorsed and encouraged others to read and use this translation. And it's just catching like wildfire in that, in that um, scope. It's, it's very much imbalanced, right? Like, like it's not like randomly everybody's buying this translation. It's, it's more just in the charismatic movement, which I am part of, by the way. Sure. <laughs> and it's in this movement where we see this translation being used. But okay. But the translation has some very, very serious uh, issues with it. And um, I'm, I was shocked when I first started looking into it that like you have, you have on one hand, some leaders that are endorsing it without reflectively, honestly looking at it in, in, in all honesty. And then you have on the other hand, none of the normal people who would, who would care about the theology and the translation, is it accurate and all that? They're not even looking at it because it's not in their circle, right? It's only being promoted mm-hmm. in one circle. Mm-hmm. So they're not even aware of it. So that's when I started doing a bunch of research on it, making videos, and then started the Passion Project, where I'm actually hiring scholars to do reviews so that we can just get information out there about this translation. Yeah, so we've got, like, you know, you, like you said, you said you've got the Brian Houstons, you've got the Bill Johnsons, you've got these these groups and organizations that are really promoting this book. And, and to your point, it seems as if they're just reading another translation. It seems pretty close to their Bible. Um, there's There are scholars out there that we'll talk about, and I say scholars, uh, guys that are viewed as theological authorities and spaces who are endorsing the book, and they're going, oh, well, if they say it's good, I'll say it's good. Um, so so hopefully today we can kind of discuss some of that and bring shed some light to it. But but let's do that. Let's try and, and, and go back to, to the question I, I tried to set up earlier where we talked about the standards for all biblical interpretation everywhere. What, what would be good standards and practices for biblical interpretation? Yeah, so basically, um, yeah. yeah, for translation, yeah. Translation you, you just want the original meaning. That's like the number one rule. You want the, the original um, meaning of what was originally written. I just want to know what did, what did, not just what words did he use in Greek or something or Hebrew, but what did it mean? Now put that in the new language, preserve meaning. So it's, it's mm-hmm. all about preservation. No invention should be taking place, just preservation. We're just translating it. We're not transforming it. That's the idea. So there's two steps to this. Um, one is you want to first find the original reading. Like what is the original reading? So we have tons of ancient manuscripts of the Bible and everybody, including the King James authors did what's, you know, experience the results of what's called textual criticism, where they look at different manuscripts and they try to determine what the original reading was, right? We, we have, it's slight, it's in this manuscript this way, it's slightly different in this one. What was it originally saying? So textual criticism is where it begins. The next step is translating. For this, you want people who have proper training, you know, they know Koine Greek. It's not just any Greek, it's Koine Greek, right? They know Hebrew, they do know, and on a side note, they might know some Aramaic for some Old Testament passages as well. And you also want lots of scholars. You want a, a large number of scholars who have different disciplines because maybe they are good at Psalms and Hebrew poetry, but maybe someone else is good at the didactic stuff in the Greek of the New Testament, right? You, you, you have various scholars, someone who specializes in the gospels, you want them on your team. And you also want people with various backgrounds. Like they, <clears throat> they don't have any theological agendas they can push because you have, they're all broadly evangelical Christians, 
but they're not pushing like a particular denomination's view or perspective on things so that this this keeps the translation from being infected by the theology of a particular group. We want to keep it pure is the idea. Then you want a bunch of review. You want to debate and talk about how you translate the word that we get in our New Testament that says propitiation. Jesus is our propitiation. And you want people to sit and debate, like, how are we going to analyze this? Where are we going to translate this? What's it going to look at? Then you want, finally, people to review the work. And then last last bit, you put any uncertainties in the footnotes, right? So your best, clearest translation, and then uncertainties go in the footnotes. You put italics if this word has been added to assist the translation, and you put like, hey, it could be translated this way or could be translated that way. This is just to give all the information to the reader. So we have as much power as we can to understand God's word. Okay. So so that's a pretty universally understood list of standards. And so the next kind of natural logical question is, how does the Passion Translation measure up against that? Yes. Um, let me let me read to you <clears throat> real quick. This is from Douglas Moo. Douglas Moo did a... Now, he, if you guys... If you know, you know, Douglas Moo is a, uh, a wonderful yeah. man who has, a, has done a lot at using his knowledge and wisdom to be able to promote understanding of the scripture. He's worked yeah, on things like sure. the NIV I have some of his commentaries. Yeah, I've read his commentary, I have his commentary yeah. on Romans yeah. and Galatians. So, yeah. so he's known for Romans, right? Well, I, mm-hmm. I hired him to review Romans in the Passion Translation. Uh-oh. I just uh. want to get the best people I can. Well, here's this is one oh, of the things dude. Douglas Moo mentioned as he was preparing <clears throat> to explain his response to Romans in the Passion Translation. He says, no single person is up to the work of translating the Bible. No person can be an expert in all three languages and in all 66 books. This is why the best translations are produced by a team of scholars. The NIV, for instance, on which I work, is the product of a committee of the Committee on Bible Translation, a team of 15 scholars from different parts of the world and from different evangelical theological traditions. This committee, moreover, has changed personnel many times since its founding in 1966. Moreover, the committee has sought input from outside scholars as it has done its work. A conservative estimate is that 200 evangelical scholars have had an important voice in the NIV translation. By seeking input from so many different scholars, biases which we are not even aware of are canceled out. Now, to contrast this, the the Passion Translation is the work of one guy, Brian Simmons. One guy who has minimal educational background in the ancient languages and no previous experience doing a original language to English translation in the past with no um, controls about a committee of people who were over overviewing the translation, that sort of thing. So yeah, that's, that's so kind you, of you, big deal. you mentioned earlier that you, you would want someone who's doing a Bible translation not to uh, place their own theological um, I mean, we, we, none of us like live in a, like, uh, uh, are be able to suspend our biases entirely. Right. Uh, it's, it's almost yeah. impossible not to have some kind of theological grid when we enter in, uh, to, to doing interpretation. Um, so, so when our translation for that matter. So, so when, when we're looking at the passion translation, does the passion translation go out of its way to change the original meaning of the text? Yeah. Oh, in, in many, many places. I'll give some examples today, but that that's pretty much the main concern. I, I, if I could summarize it this way, and we'll talk more about it later, but the summary would be this. The, the Passion Translation presents itself as though it's a careful and faithful translation. And on their, on their literature, they say on their website <clears throat> that you can use the Passion as your primary Bible for study purposes. Um. That's like a really big, big claim and serious claim for a translator to make. However, in the reviews, 
they hands down over and over again say the passion translation isn't even a translation it's sort of a paraphrase but even that is too loose of a term we should call it an interpretive paraphrase or the word that the scholars like to bring up is a targum now a targum is when you <clears throat> this is an old jewish thing when they would say, take like, say Genesis or a book and they would rewrite it in their own words and they would add interpretation into the text. Mm -hmm. So you're kind of getting a Bible study, not exactly just the Bible. Um, <clears throat> they're saying it's not even a translation. It's, it's okay. more like so, a Targum. And, yeah. So who is it that's saying that it's a Targum? Because they're, the Passion Translations website is saying you can use this as your Bible. You can preach with it. Yeah. You can study it, all of this. What, yeah. Who is it that's saying it's not? Yeah. So like Daryl, uh, laws in the country that no one's allowed to translate and you can't get a team of scholars together to do it. It's like somebody do it. Just anybody do it. Right. Like mm -hmm. if I'm starving to death, I will eat out of a trash can and that's better than nothing. Look, if the only Bible you have is the passion, you should read it. But if you have any other good options, you should take those, you know, it, it's And just, we see that from like yeah. Jerome, right? Because like Jerome translates the Latin Vulgate uh -huh. and like mm -hmm. that creates the problems that Martin Luther starts banging his head up against with translations yeah. on repentance. So people mm -hmm. are really susceptible for error and having a plurality of individuals with interpretive backgrounds and, and committed academic study mitigates that level of translational error. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's just, I want the original meaning. That's all I want, right? Right. This is, this is, this is, imagine if you were using a translator and you're out, and I've, I've been witnessing like in countries where we went on a mission trip and I have a translator, and you say something that's not funny, and then the translator talks, and then the crowd laughs. <laughs> now, the crowd had a good time, but what are you thinking? What is that? What word did they just put in my mouth? You know, <laughs> why are they laughing? Or, or, or what if you say something that's that's not heartwarming and then the translator says something, translates, and then the crowd goes, oh, you're like, well, they may have enjoyed that, but that's not what I said. That's a passion translation a million times in a row. <laughs> right. Yeah. So this just it has me thinking like Jehovah's Witnesses. And and, and even though, you know, we just did this, this episode on the NAR and we have another episode coming up in December on the new apostolic reformation. And so you're telling us that a lot of this stuff is in the charismatic circles, probably in a lot of what many people would identify as new apostolic reformation type circles. So do you see this as having the possibility of of sort of creating a cult out of a new version of the Word of God. Um, I, I don't want to say that. <clears throat> um, I mean, all these possibilities are always there. But if I say yes to that question, then it, it could lead people to overreact to the Passion Translation. And I don't want to do that, right? I, I just want truth. So the Passion Translation, as far as I can tell, does not compromise the gospel of Christ. To me, that's a really big deal. That's a really big deal. It also, <clears throat> most of the changes, um, they are, uh, shall I say, frivolous changes that are seeking to enhance the likability of the tr of the Bible, I, I, if I can put it that way, right? Let's make this better. <laughs> Let's make it more likable, make it more encouraging, make it more passionate. Um, you know, a lot of what he adds are, are words like very, extremely, um, incredibly. It's, <clears throat> it's just adjectives, you know. That sort of thing. In many cases, though, you start to lose the actual intention of the text. You start to miss out on it. And when you add these up across the translation, you basically, you have who knows how many problems we're going to get because we are altering the text of scripture. Is that a 
a, is it like a salvation issue? No, it's definitely a, a health issue, a Christian health issue. It's a love of God issue. I love his word. I'm not going to change it. I'm not going to add or take away. And mm-hmm. and it can cause problems. <clears throat> Where I primarily see it causing problems is, and we'll get there a little bit later. We'll share a chart I made and sent to you guys um, on this topic. But the Passion Translation peculiarly adds preaching points for hyper charismatic churches and pastors into the text of scripture, right? Jesus says, um, you know, according to your faith, you know, you'll, you'll be healed. I'm trying to remember the exact phrase, but it's, it's like, um, anyway, something like that. According to your faith, let it be healed. But then, then this changes it to a broad statement about mankind. Like you will have what your faith expects. Okay, but wait, that, that's a great hyper charismatic preaching point, but that's not actually what the text is saying there. And so we'll get into more examples of that sort of thing. Um, yeah. Now, could do hyper charismatic, you know, teachings, and I'm charismatic, but when they go whoop, off the deep end, does it lead to potential cult things? Potentially, yes. But does that mean that that's what it is? No. And I just want to make that distinction. And then it's good as well to make the distinction to say you're not you're not making critiques on the passion translation from a place of anti-charismatic. You're not no. doing critiques on the passion because it's like no. I'm afraid of these cults. You have no motivation other than yeah. this is um, endangering truth. This is endangering yeah. the gospel. It's distorting things, and we yeah. should care as Christians who are pursuing truth. Now, now I'd be I'd be curious. So. Um, when we talk about qualifications and scholars and stuff like that, and people who are like, "Well, Mike has a lot of opinions on on this, but like, is he really qualified?" You mentioned Douglas Moo and some of these other guys. Can you tell us some of the guys who are working on the Passion Translation and some of the understandings that they're coming to, so people don't think that you're you're kind of coming to these own conclusions all on your own? Yes, let me <clears throat> read you some of the names of some of the guys that are involved here. Um, just digging. He's paying right them, but he's like, I can't remember their names. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing a lot of things. I started this project a while ago and I just handed it off to those guys and we're, we're picking it up again here. I'm going to start doing interviews of them in a minute here. Um, but um, so we, we have uh, Douglas Moo, we have Daryl Bach, we have Craig Blomberg, Bach. we have Najay Gupta, we have Mark Strauss. Um, we, <laughs> these aren't just yeah. people who have, when I say scholar, the reason this, this isn't meant to be like, oh, they're scholars, you have to believe them. No, no, no. I, I just mean that they're trained <laughs> in languages. And they have experience yeah. working with them, right? And, and they're that's all we mean. Too. Um, and so, <clears throat> we'll put it this way: you know, in in the in the New Testament, we have we see the gift of tongues in the Book of Acts. And what was the most amazing part of it? What verified it is that when they spoke in tongues in Acts two, people who were not even Christians, they heard it in their own language and they understood it clearly. And they were like, "We're hearing them tell us the works of God in our own language. How is this possible?" Right. Well, Brian Simmons claims that he's translating well and that he's even doing so with the help of the Holy Spirit. Well, why is it then that the people who know these languages don't recognize that? That's the point, right? If, if this was the Lord, if this was something God's doing, if this is really clear, then why is it that these guys who know the languages, who are highly respected, who are evangelical Christians, who, who um, they're not just a bunch of cessationists or something. Why is it that they go? Yeah, I am not hearing in my own language the, the wonderful works of God. I'm hearing in Brian Simmons' language what he wants to say. Hmm. Now, now, speaking of Brian Simmons, like, what's the story behind why he even wrote or translated the, <laughs> maybe we should say wrote, no, translated the Passion Translation? Authored, Authored there it is. Authored. <clears throat> yeah. Um, so Brian's short, short version, um, and it's very muddy. The timeline's very muddy. It, depending on what interview you hear, 
from him talking about his his past, but he was a missionary down in Panama and he ministered to a group of people there where he did help. He assisted in a community where they were making a new Bible translation. And the, um, the translation was mostly being done by other people. Brian Simmons was a reader from what I've heard. I actually talked to the people at Ethnos 360 where he used to work and they told me what his role was because they didn't get it from him. They said his, his role was to take the translation they were doing and read it to the people in their own language and then report back. Um, how does it sound to them? Are they understanding it? So he was like a stylist, right? Not, not so much a translator. That would be more his role. Um, so now that work he did there, we can all commend it. And we, but I'm not going to romanticize everything he's done. Like it, it, it's, it's hearing the stories. It's like turning the guy into a superhero, you know, like mm-hmm. I was there and they all wanted to kill me and they hated me and everything. And I'm just, I just start to like, okay, I just want to know your credentials. Like what I'm asking for. Sure. Can you translate these foreign languages? But now he's translating for the first time from Greek, Hebrew, and huge issue. He says Aramaic, although that's a major just, um, spin on reality when he says that and he says he's translating from these original languages yet in some interviews he says he had minimal backgrounds in original languages minimal backgrounds and he had to have the power of the holy spirit to help him translate in other places he says i had all the training that new tribes mission would give me and he calls himself a linguist which is a official title that you would give yourself if you are like a credentialed degreed linguist so it's like well which one is it and it depends. Like if he's talking to a charismatic crowd, he seems to say, I have the Holy Spirit. I had minimal training and background. If he's talking to a non-charismatic crowd, he's like, I had all the training and I'm a linguist. Um, and I just so, look at those things and I say, I don't think he's trying to lie. I think that he's just a storyteller to put it as nicely as I can. Yeah. So, But academically, did he have any linguistic training? He has no degree related to being a linguist. He has nothing substantive that we can look at. I, I I still can't figure out how much training he did receive. It's all vague statements. I have asked for it. I've asked him for it. Um, I still don't have that information because I'd like, I don't, I don't look, he could be credentialed. It's, it's still going to be the same end result on the passion translation. But when you, when you add that there's a lack of training and experience on top of everything else, it starts to be, make the picture more clear what's happening here. He's made a translation that isn't good. It's just incredibly likable to a particular group of Christians. Yeah, and, and talking about uh, it being particularly likable to a particular group of Christians, there are mm-hmm. other people out there in those particular groups that are viewed as authority figures um, who've kind of spoken positively of the passion and actually call it a paraphrase. Oh, yeah. I think of uh, yeah. Dr. Michael Brown, who is a friend of ours, mm-hmm. he's a friend of yours. We all, all of three mm-hmm. of us here, think highly of him, have spoken with him, have interacted with him multiple times. Uh, again, think of him highly, but but um, he, he speaks of the Passion Translation as it's a, it's a paraphrase, and it can be used mm-hmm. alongside of Scripture, and, and he speaks of Brian Simmons highly and, and, and seems to parrot the kind of qualifications that he's heard Brian um, speak about. But as you've yeah. explained, you've actually dug into Brian's um, credentials, and he might not be as credentialed as Dr. Brown might think he is. And again, I not to say... Well, or he what, might what, be. Or maybe he knows. We don't I know. know but it's um, not out there. But he, he does speak of the translation highly. How can you... Uh, help navigate these waters for people who love Dr. Brown, love the t- Passion Translation, and are looking to him to kind of verify this translation. What, what would you say to that group? Um, I would say that actually Michael Brown shouldn't be quoted to be used that way, right? First, Michael Brown thinks it's a paraphrase. Yeah. It's not. I mean, it, I mean, when you read it, you think it's a paraphrase. When you look at the information that's being presented on the tr- Passion Translation website, it's not a fact. 
In fact, one of the scholars who wrote a paper on it, I had to write back to him and say, you've misunderstood. This isn't being shopped out as a paraphrase. And I sent him quotes from the website. This is a good translation for serious Bible study. So he added a new paragraph in, in the beginning of his paper to say, um, this claims that it's a translation. It's not. <laughs> he, he, had to re, he had to restart, right? Michael Brown thinks it's a paraphrase because he didn't look really carefully into it. He just took it at face value. Um, he also knows that Brian Simmons is a very loving and very kind man. And as far as he knows, he has a good reputation. And so he, I think he responded that way. I don't think he seriously looked at it. He actually, um, he, I'm, I'm pretty confident he hasn't seriously looked at it, but I think he's open to and open to it. And I might actually, I don't know if I should share this, but I might actually go on his channel to talk about this. He actually offered for me to come on and discuss the Passion Translation on his YouTube channel. And I said, hold on, we're still in the middle of this um, uh, Passion Project where I hired all these scholars. So let me get a little further down the road first. So I just never picked up after that. So the ball's in my court, uh, I guess. How, do it. How often do you think that's happening? That somebody, you know, maybe a pastor speaks positively of it or, or maybe he quotes the passion translation but he's preaching from the rest you know the norm like the bible bible uh, but yeah. maybe he refers to it or what you know and it's put in this positive light because maybe someone hasn't done their research to know the way it's marketing itself do you see that happening are pastors yeah. using this and they're just not knowledgeable about it yeah and and that's the thing the changes in the passion are nice like you you you've got to get this like the passion translation you'll read it and go I like that. Like mm -hmm. here's Brian Simmons is a good author. He's really good. Like just, is it okay to make it better? Right? Can you change the Bible as long as you're making it better, at least better from your opinion? Right. Cause I don't think it's going to get any better. I think God made it perfect <laughs> as is, but, but more, more to the point, right. There are people like Bill Johnson who said that the passion translation is, and I'm going to try to quote him word for word, the best thing that has happened to a Bible translation in our life. I, I think that's almost word for word quote. I mean, I could actually find it for you, but it's on the Passion Translation website, right? Bill Johnson said this. And all I think is, okay, it's one thing for a pastor to use the Passion Translation by quoting it because they don't know any better, right? They're just looking at 10 different translations on this verse. They see the Passion and they go, ooh, that one really helps my study. And they use it. They're being a little reckless, maybe a little bit naive. It's a different thing to endorse the translation as if you know what you're talking about and to say it's the best thing that's ever happened. That's a different thing. Why is it the best thing? Because, you know, Bill Johnson's very interested in pushing his um, his orthopraxy, his, his way of doing church and of doing gifts. And the Passion Translation gives them a lot of ammo to do that. You know, they teach you have to activate your gifts. Guess what? The Passion Translation has added the phrase activate your gifts into the text of scripture. It's like really useful if you're part of that niche. Yeah, no, and, and I'm I'm interested. Um, so we're almost halfway through this video. And we've talked about the way this thing's been put together, what scholars are saying, what scholars are saying. Can we just compare and contrast some scripture for our audience and say, okay, now these are all of our thoughts, and you think, okay, maybe we're making a bigger deal of this than it is. Can you show us maybe some of those egregious, and I'm using air quotes, translations mm -hmm. that um, right. that would really kind of abuse the text of scripture? Okay, hold on. Before we do that, can I share with you guys a few things that we, we talked about sharing? I just want to make sure we don't miss them. Is that sure, okay? Sure, sure. Yeah, please. Um, so there were a few things that we talked about, like, you know, how translations are normally done. Let me talk about how the Passion Translation has done them. So oh, okay. we had like a, a list of things. Can we start working through that? Yeah, like, please, yeah, please. Yeah. All right. Uh, All I, right thought, cool. I thought um, you kind of ran through them. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't want to make you repeat yourself. So yeah. I felt like... Yeah, you well, we're having an organic conversation. So it's yeah, like, where sure, are we? Sure. Um, 
but okay, so we're interested in knowing that the Bible translations use the most likely ancient reading. You know, you want to know mm-hmm. what the author originally wrote. Oh, yeah. um, the Passion Translation generally follows what modern translations are doing, <clears throat> but often with no footnote, with no explanation, he will just randomly revert to what is an, a very unlikely reading. Now, Brian Simmons is not a textual critic, and he's not seeming to be contacting textual critics. He's, so a, a lot of people are just, when they review it, they're like, wait, why is he using this reading that everybody's like, that's not what it originally said. So he just kind of randomly does that. It seems to me that it's based on what preaches well or based on what perhaps feels good. But there's probably the most egregious thing about the original is that he continually says he's using the Aramaic. So this is in the Old Testament. We have sections of the Bible that are in Aramaic, like in Daniel and stuff like that. In the New Testament, we have a couple words in Aramaic, right? Jesus says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, right? Like that's Aramaic, right? My father, my father, or my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Aramaic. But it's only a few words scattered. Brian Simmons will be translating Galatians and saying that he's getting his content from the original Aramaic. This is so um, mind-blowingly strange. Galatians was written in Greek. There is no original Aramaic. So where's he getting I had, from? I had three scholars when I sent them the paper, what they were going to review who messaged me back and they were like, what is the original Aramaic? What's he talking about? And like, they didn't know how to write their paper because they don't even know what he's talking about. There's no original Aramaic. So parse that out for me. When you say there is no original Aramaic, are we just saying that's not true? Or are are we saying that it was translated from Greek into Aramaic and he wanted to use the Aramaic Mm -hmm. translation of the Greek so that he would have a language that maybe Jesus spoke? Like, I'm I'm trying to be I'm trying to be generous here. Is there an Aramaic translation? It does use the word Abba once in Galatians. Hey, it says Abba (laughs) that one time. One does. Uh, That's true. Very good. Very insightful. There Um, you go. (laughs) It's actually it's actually a deceitful, untrue statement. And the reason why is this. If he had said, um. This comes from, or, or it doesn't come from, if he used the phrase in Aramaic, the word is this, and I'm going to add that to my translation for some reason, that, that at least wouldn't be deceitful at all. Okay. But when mm-hmm. he says in the Aramaic, in the same way you use the phrase in the Greek, in the Hebrew, or if you even go a step further and say in the original Aramaic, then you're implying something that just doesn't actually exist. So you could mean in the original Aramaic text, which doesn't exist, or you could mean well, they spoke Aramaic back then. So really, you know, Paul's writing in Greek, but if he was to say this in Aramaic, then he would have said this, except that Paul's writing in Greek to people he taught in Greek in Galatia. Like it was all Greek. Everything was, it's all Greek to us. Well, it was all Greek to them. <laughs> it was all so Greek well to them. Done. Like the most so it's, it's actually understanding of it. There's really no other way to understand it is what you're saying. Yeah, like, and, and here's where I really encounter. It look like deception. Yeah, and scholars like, they don't like, saying things like that right they don't want right. to be like oh. I feel, one of them sent, sent me his review and he goes i hope i wasn't too harsh because he just doesn't, doesn't they don't like condemning things you know they're not provocateurs um, yeah they're not yeah. they're really not they're, they're they're usually good at not getting in trouble when they say things that's because they usually get real good at it. <laughs> yeah okay but not me <laughs> and, and, and what about for the now does he do that for the whole thing is he saying the whole thing is based on aramaic or just for certain books just uh, no, no. It's it's kind of spread throughout all the all the New it's, Testament. It's random moments. It's just random moments. Yeah, and and what he appears to be using isn't even okay. So you might say it comes from the Syriac, which was a um, a translation probably from the Greek into Aramaic many many years later. Okay, so this comes from Greek to Aramaic. So you can't 
you can't you know do you guys get the problem oh yeah Aramaic. that's He's like saying a more in the russian text. it says this therefore right. i know what it really means in greek but but it's um uh it's it's not just that the He's not just actually going to Aramaic, which is, it seems he doesn't know Aramaic. It, instead, he's probably using in many places, especially in Galatians, something called the Roth text. Now, Gabriel Roth did a translation of, of the ancient like Syriac, the Peshitta. He translated this over into English. It looks like Brian Simmons is using this guy's translation of Aramaic as if it's of the Syriac, which isn't the same as the, new, the Aramaic they even spoke in New Testament times. Um, he's using that translation and then calling it the original Aramaic. What, what, what is this? Like, like you should, you should be fired. Right. So job as translator. Yeah. It, it almost sounds like this sort of, I know we, I feel like we put this label on a lot of things, but like this Gnostic secret knowledge deal. <laughs> it's our favorite, right? it's our favorite adjective. <laughs> Everything's Gnosticism. If you can charismatic. put Gnostic and demon on it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a demon. It's a Gnostic demon. That says, Gnostic and you or the stamp you just stamp everything. <laughs> yeah, but, we do that a lot. Like, um, but he seems to have secret knowledge of secret manuscripts that no one else has. Is that is that like a version of Gnosticism? Well, here's the thing: is I mean, okay, I'm gonna be very frank with you guys because people, you you people listening are very important, and you hearing and understanding truth is very important. And when people start talking about original languages and all this, it goes right over your head, and you just have to take their word for it. So I'm just gonna be very plain. Um, Brian Simmons is a very good storyteller. Okay, he's a very good storyteller. If you brought him on here to explain the Aramaic, Aramaic stuff, he would quote scholars out of context and he would tell stories until you you at least thought, I don't even know what to believe anymore. The reality is we don't have any access to any reliable, you know, consistent statements about what the original Aramaic could have been, let alone actually was. And so any appeal to original Aramaic that you see in the footnotes of the New Testament, it's different in the Old Testament in certain places. In the New Testament, unless it's actually an Aramaic phrase like Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani, unless it's something like that, that that is an actually deceptive piece of information scattered all through the footnotes and in the actual translation itself. I mean, I was yeah. told that he had like this Aramaic golden tablet that he had special glasses to read oh, gosh. that helped. No, that's not true. I didn't hear that. That was a different, that was a different guy. Different, different guy. That was a different guy. Okay. So working through these, you've got the good textual criticism was one of the standards. Another one uh -huh. was, and maybe we've already, I don't know if we've touched on this one enough or if there's more you want to say on it, the community of translators yeah. with proper training and diverse uh, theological or diverse background. Yeah. Yeah. So on the passion, okay, you don't find this anywhere, right? You're like, who's reviewing your work? But but he knows this is going to be a question asked. So on the passion translation website, on the about tab, the, the, the FAQ, you can um, you can see a list of people's names, and those names are given, but they don't give their their PhDs or what their credibility is. They don't give what their involvement was. It's just a list of names. Douglas Moo looked into this, and his statement was, and I'm quoting from his paper. He says he claims that respected scholars and editors have reviewed the translation, although as far as I could see, they are never named. That is in the translation itself. On the website, only one of the people of those names he lists has any kind of credential like that relates to Bible translation, right? They might say it says doctor, but their doctor has nothing to do with Bible translation or ancient languages. Um, only one of them he's like has. an orthodontist or something. <laughs> he's a dentist. Huh? <laughs> he's like an orthodontist or something. Like he's like. I mean, it's, it's unrelated. Who cares? You can be a rocket scientist. It doesn't matter. Sure. You're not. A, you don't know original languages. Like, 
Right, right. If somebody did a Bible translation and then they put, um, you know, just any anybody, a professor who teaches um, world history, and they were like, Dr. So-and-so reviewed my <clears> translation. <throat> like, that's just deceptive. Mm-hmm. That's not a review. Dr. That's not Seuss. a review. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, like it actually Seuss. rhymes. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah. So there's nods, but there's no substance. And I think the I think what we're getting is the appeal is to the average person. Okay, the average the average person doesn't know how to even evaluate these things, and they look and they go, "Well, he had people review it," and then they move on. Mm-hmm. I think he's laboring. I'm going to just be super blunt to intentionally create a misimpression, a false belief in the minds of those who are reading the Passion Translation. And whether he's doing it intentionally or not is irrelevant to me. Okay. I don't care if it's on purpose. I just care that it's happening. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah. mm, okay. So you, you've got the community of translators, diverse backgrounds, been scrutinized among theologians and translators before it was published. That's obviously not true. No, um, afterwards, yes. Some have, have written papers and stuff like that about it afterwards. Okay. Um, but we also talked before. about trying to prevent the 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 kind of social ideological theological imports into the text Mm. right because that's one of the Um, things that we're trying to avoid yes the okay that that doesn't happen that that is exactly the opposite of what happens and um if you'd like we can skip to the part where we talk about this um that chart i can we can share that if you'd like right now Yeah. yeah and this chart was, here's the thing. I realize this, that, um, I, I've been around in, in, you know, I understand charismatic stuff better than a lot of the scholars do who understand scripture, but maybe not charismatics. Okay. <laughs> um, and I realized that there are these words that are like important terminologies in not just charismatic groups. Actually, it's not in It's in a specific hyper charismatic circle. Okay. This group these words are important. And I thought if I was going to test whether the Passion Translation was adding sort of hyper charismatic catchphrases and terminologies and teaching into the text of scripture, I could do it by searching these words, these keywords in the translation and then comparing it with other translations. So this chart you're looking at, you guys on the screen, is, is me doing that. I searched um, the ESV, New King James Version, NIV, and, and NASB, and the Passion Translation. And I compared word counts of sort of hyper charismatic keywords for lack of a better term. And you can see like the word realm, which is an important word in some hyper charismatic world, big word in the charismatic, in the, in the charismatic yeah. world. Yeah. Yeah. It appears in the charismatic, zero realm, in the charismatic realm, in the charismatic realm, <laughs> it activates um, portals. Um, <laughs> we looked up portal earlier. Cause you guys asked me, does it portal in there? I looked it up. Yep. He added it in there a couple times too. Um, but the word realm, it occurs zero times in the ESV, zero in the New King James, in the NIV, 10 times. In the NASB, the word realm appears once. In the Passion Translation, 196 times. Wow. The word prophetic is in there. Um, it at the most, four times in the ESV, has it more than any of the other translations I surveyed, except for the Passion. It doesn't have it four times, it has it 28 times. The word anointed, it, it you know, ESV has it the most, 15 times. Passion. 223 times um activate six times oh that may not seem like much the word activate it but it's in no other translations none of the ones i surveyed um it's six times in the passion translation but the points where it occurs are very key points because it adds the word activate to spiritual gifts you have to Mm -hmm. activate your spiritual gifts lo and behold brian simmons sells courses you can purchase 
so you can get your gifts activated. Wow. Am I the only one who's really disturbed by that? Um, the word promise is added many times. The word impart 35 times versus the ESV only has it six times. If you look at other words like the word religious, okay, this is this is a big deal. The word religious is in the ESV twice. New King James Version four times, NIV four times, NASB twice. So the word religious doesn't come in too often. It's usually in James where it says if anyone thinks he's religious, but he doesn't do this and this and this, his religion is useless. Religion that is undefiled, you know, before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep yourself unspotted from the world. That's usually where the word religion pops up, right? But but like in the... Like I know in the I know like that in the NLT like the New Living Translation, um, it frequently says religious leaders in referring to the Pharisees. But the NLT is also a paraphrase, isn't it? Yeah, it's a dynamic. Um, the NLT example. is just a very much more of a flexible translation. It is a translation. It's just a very so like there was the Living Bible. Let me come back to this religious thing in a second because there's an sure, important sure, sure. point I want to make on that. But yeah. the Living Bible was a was a paraphrase it became hugely popular beyond what they ever expected. And then the author was like, Hey, let's make like a more respectable version of this. That's more accurate. Cause he's, mm -hmm. he's concerned that people are using the living Bible a little too much. And mm -hmm. so, right. Cause the guy cares about the truth of God's word. So they made the new living translation where they brought in a bunch of scholars and they tried to make this. And it, it, it is a, a closer to the paraphrase. It's on a spectrum. It's closer to paraphrase. But as far as like, you know, here's word for word, like here's paraphrase, like, okay, well, here's the New Living Translation. It's like the passion is like down the road and around the corner. It's like, it's like in its own, it's in its own realm. If it exploded, <laughs> we wouldn't hear it for another three days. It's that far away. So, okay. So look at the word religious. The passion adds the word religious all the time. And it does it in those places sometimes. Religious scholars, yeah. religious, you know, scholars in particular, because he's got an ax to grind again, probably because he's uh -oh. not one and he knows that they're going to criticize his work. I mean... So I'll just make my Bible say they're bad. Like, okay. At any rate, the word religious is added many, many times. And every time, 141 times, every time I could find, it's used in a negative context. Religious is a bad word. Except for the one time when almost every Bible uses the word religious, where it says that pure and undefiled religion before God is this, right? In that passage, he says spirituality or something like that. Right? He has to change the word because religion in his niche right? We don't have a religion. We have a relationship. We don't, we're not religious. Religious is a bad word. We're something better. We transcend that. But the Bible doesn't actually agree with that statement, right? It's religion and a relationship. It's both. It's genuine religion. God's interested in pure, true religion, not just anti-religion. So he's imported this theology and he's pushed it onto the text of scripture. He liberally adds the word religious in lots of places and then takes it away in one of the most certain places where you should have it. So, so earlier you were talking about how we don't use the Tyndale Bible anymore, and there's a variety of reasons for it, but one is we don't speak like that anymore. And yeah. same with the same reason why most people don't use the King James anymore. Now, what would you say if somebody says, well, well hey, uh, you know, in our circles, this is how we talk. We talk about realms and portals and anointings <laughs> and all of these things. So this is just, this is our language and just like any, if I was taking the Bible to a tribe, I would want to put it in their language. We just kind of have our own niche language. So this yeah. is God's word in our lingo. What would you say to that? Uh -huh. I would say the, the, the thing is, right, preserving meaning means that um, you do use the modern ling language. You do use what the terms we're using today, but only if they mean the thing that the Bible originally meant. Right. right. So if the Bible says like, um, uh, train yourself up to godliness and you trans, trans, translate that or you turn that into um, 
you need to activate yourself to greater realms of glory and levels of spirituality. Okay, but you aren't just translating it now. You are actually adding ideas into the text that are foreign to the text that come from your beliefs, not from the Bible. So if I'm right, talking about yeah. these levels of spirituality and, and, and I'm adding realms and I'm adding activating gifts and stuff, this is all my theology being added to the text. This isn't about language. This is about beliefs being embedded into scripture that aren't there. And this is one that we didn't have time to cover, but like you did revelation, right? The revelation of X, Y, and Z, right? Most yeah. times it's used in any of those other translations is 17 times, 110 times. And if there was a word that we should be cautious of tossing around uh, the Pentecostal charismatic movement, we love the revelation of we're this or the revelation of that. Revelation, we, yeah. We're very yeah. liberal with the term revelation. And just mm-hmm. to say that this is, um, yeah, this, this is reading our theology into a text without question. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a sobering thing to think um, Christianity hasn't always looked the way that my local church looks. Mm-hmm. And I'm not supposed to try and make it look that way. Yeah. Mm. And it's okay that, was, that my, my, my experience as a Christian is, is, is in my culture and it looks a little different than, than somebody else. But if I try to take Paul and I try to turn him into a, a, um, a hipster worship leader. With skinny jeans then something's wrong. Yeah. Something's yeah. wrong. I I've now lost Paul and I've replaced him with somebody else. So that's, that's a problem. There's one thing I want to mention though, you, you know, as far as real concerning <clears throat> concepts. So in the passion translation, um, I noticed the flexible use of the translation of Christ or Christos, right? Um, Christos is a, a, the Greek for Mashiach, which is the Hebrew Messiah, right? So Messiah and Christ, those are synonyms. They mean exactly the same thing. It's just a way of saying Jesus is that guy the Old Testament predicted, right? <laughs> That's what it means. Um, now, it's true that the etymology of Messiah or Christos is anointed, anointed, somebody who's the anointed one or an anointed one. That's etymology. But when people make a giant deal about etymology, it usually indicates they don't understand ancient language very well. So etymology, the more I've studied language, the more I've realized it's not that important. And this is mm-hmm. going to just explode years of things you've heard in the past <laughs> on the meanings of words. Um, but that's because we have non-professionals opening a concordance and then going, oh, I like that and I'm going to preach it. And mm-hmm. that can create a lot of misunderstandings. At any rate, so... Um, normally translations, they'll, they'll take Christos and they'll translate it consistently. You know, whenever we see this word, we'll say Christ. Or if you want, you could say Messiah. Um, you could do that. I think the um, ISV was doing that a lot. I think they actually changed their minds on it, decided it wasn't a good idea originally. But you want to be consistent. But actually, Brian Simmons translates Christ like randomly. It's like however he wants. At one point, he calls it Christ. Another point, he says Messiah. Another point, he says anointed ones. Um, an example is like Galatians three verses three through four or Colossians one verses one and two. I think in the Colossians passage, he takes the word Christ that appears in the Greek three times and he translates it once Christ, once Messiah and once anointed one. It's the same word in the same context and he's translating it three different ways. Like you don't do that. (laughs) You don't do that. Yeah. Yeah. Like, Hey guys, I'm going to, I'm going to come over there. And when I come over there, I want you to be ready because when I come, I'll be in a hurry. And then you translate that and you say, well, he used the word come three times. I'm going to translate it three totally different ways. Hey guys, yeah. I'm going to hurry up over there. And when I arrive extremely, I want you to, you know, it's, I start adding all these terms. It's like, wait, hold on. You're, you're losing my meaning. Okay. But I was wondering why anointed ones. 
that one of the most common translations of Messiah or Christ, Christos, is anointed one. And I'm like, why does he keep calling Jesus anointed one? I get it, it's the etymology, but the etymology is not the meaning. Messiah means more than anointed one. So translating it as that loses the meaning. Why is he doing it? Then yeah. I finally found out Acts 11.26. You guys might be familiar with Acts 11.26. I know you are. Um, this is in Antioch where the disciples were first called Christians. Christians, which comes from Christos, which comes oh, from anointed ones. Christ. We were first called okay. anointed ones. In this passage, you've got to listen to the... To, Listen to what he does with this particular passage. Um, let me pull up the actual quote. I'll make sure I get it exactly right. I'm nervous. Okay. In Acts eleven twenty six, it says, to, well, first I'll read it to you, New King James Version, okay? This is the version we all would recognize. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year, they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. This is Saul and uh, Barnabas. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And we're like, oh, why were they called Christians? Well, they were probably mocked, actually. <laughs> like, oh, you little but, Jesus people. That's kind of yeah, a mocking yeah. thing. They just they just claimed it. Fine, call me a Jesus freak. It's like DC Talk was was present back in the uh, first century saying, uh, go ahead. But Acts 11.26 in the Passion says, Together, Saul and Barnabas ministered there for a full year, equipping the growing church and teaching the vast number of new converts. It was in Antioch, and here's the tricky part. It was in Antioch that the followers of Jesus were first revealed as, in quotes, anointed ones wait from called christians and they're being called this by somebody else they're not calling themselves this somebody else is calling them this right he he takes called christians and turns it into revealed as anointed ones it's a revelation about our nature our identity and when i listen to brian simmons teachings on who we are as christians he says things like everything that can be said about jesus can be said about you right Right. You're an anointed one. So what I've done is I've taken Jesus and I've summarized him as an anointed one. Then I've said, hey, it's been revealed that you're anointed ones too. Part of his ministry is teaching people that they're anointed ones, which is a very questionable teaching, actually, the, the way he couches it. I want to be careful. I'm not trying to be like, uh, heresy, but but I'm wondering, right? And there are clips of him saying this in public. He posted a clip on his website on, on Facebook that was like, everything that can be said about Jesus can be said about you. Like his group posted Ooh. this clip. No context, right? No everything that can be said, said about you. I'm like, everything? So like, worship me, guys. I died for your sins. Like, what? This doesn't make any sense. I actually shared this on Facebook and was like, guys, this is seriously problematic. I don't see how we how we can't freak out when we read, when we see this. He then had it deleted off of his Facebook page. Good for him. Good, right? That's great. Yeah. But wait, what do you believe? Or are you just deleting things that are getting you in trouble. Like, I don't know. I don't know what to do yeah. with this. Okay. No, yeah. That, sure that's where you go. The next step. Yeah. yeah. I want to know. I, I, I posted a graphic about the NAR and then there was some confusion. And then I posted a clarification of what I thought about it, you know, cause that's, that's yeah. what we do as Christians. We go, Hey, uh, I said this and someone goes, Whoa, that wasn't a very clear way of saying that. And we go, Oh, I'm a fallible person. Yeah. That wasn't very clear. This was the context of what I meant. Like, we don't just mm -hmm. delete it and pretend it doesn't happen. That's like... Yeah. And you know what else yeah. you don't do? You don't say, well, that wasn't in context of what I was saying. And then you walk away without ever explaining what you meant. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, You don't yeah, just yeah. go, well, that wasn't really the full story. I'm just going to run away now without telling you what my actual teaching is about your identity as an anointed one. Like, I don't... Yeah. So, I want to know Help that. me with that. So, so like, does it first John... Does it first John specifically... Now, I would never be comfortable saying 
everything can be said about Jesus can be said about us. But like, doesn't first John say, you know, you have received the anointing talking about the spirit. Like the whole, mm-hmm. it, it speaks in first John to yeah. say, you, you have the spirit, you are anointed. So it doesn't say we're anointed ones. Anointed ones anointed. might be again. Yeah. In a, yeah. Yeah. So how, would, is this a, a obviously I got to be make sure I, I ask the question clearly. I'm not asking, can we take first John and impose its meaning onto this text? But, but it seems that you're making a big deal about, uh, that we are anointed ones. That's a, that's a bad thing or doesn't the Bible uh, say that yeah. in other places? You see what I'm saying? I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure out whether this is a critique of theology or if this is a critique of a mm-hmm. uh, critique of a text. Yeah. I well, I think it's both. Um, so it doesn't outright, teach heresy with this translation right 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 but it certainly makes it easy to do that gotcha. um, because of the way it's translated and more importantly this isn't the meaning of the original so christ doesn't mean anointed one the etymology might mean that that doesn't mean the word means that there's a difference between the word and what its etymology is doing the word has way more baggage and meaning than that so jesus is the messiah we are not messiahs Agreed. Okay, so you can't translate. You can't. You can't take the term that applies to Jesus uniquely and then apply it to us. We're followers of mm. Christ, but not Christ's, and that's how yep. he's translated anointed ones, as though we are the same as him. So he's kind of devalued the the the, the implications of Messiah or Christ, and then by he's universalizing that, that label and applied it to all of us. Got right. it. That's really problematic. Yeah. Yes. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. I'm on board. Now, now if he had mar- like if he had marketed it on his website, this is a paraphrase, this is not a translation, use this as a supplement to kind of maybe help you understand some things yeah. in the in the actual Bible, yeah. would we be having any of this conversation right now? Yeah, I still would, but but I think the yeah. reason is I'll explain in a second, but he, I think he will. It's inevitable. Like when well, I do predict a prophetic truth today. No, I, I don't know, but there's a good <laughs> Are you chance. seeing through the portal realms? Yeah. <laughs> the um, portal realms. From what I've seen, Brian Simmons alters his translation when he receives criticism. He doesn't fix the translation. The translation has pervasive issues through every book and every chapter. People will highlight, here's an example, here's an example. When he reads the article, he'll change those exact examples, but he won't change the pervasive issues. Dang. Okay, so... So I, I think he's very interested in getting around criticisms, but not actually fixing the translation. I, I saw My that in First Timothy. Yeah, there was a First Timothy text that someone had had made an article that was old, uh, and in the article it removed the word correction um, in in the Passion yeah, translation like, for First Second, yeah. Second Timothy three sixteen. It was like preach the word, rebuke, right. correct, blah blah blah. It had three corrective nature words out of four, I think. Yeah, yeah. and he removed all correction. It was like. Build them up and encourage them. And then I looked yeah. in the Passion Translation, the newest rendition on Bible Gateway, and it had been changed. And I go, really? Huh, yeah. Wow. So I was like, well, I'm glad it's changed. But it sounds like, Mike, you're actually going to be translating the Passion. It won't be Brian Simmons. You're, you're, <laughs> you're scholars directly trans- that are writing all of this stuff. If he changes all that stuff, you'll actually you'll you'll actually have a wide impact on translating the Passion Translation. <laughs> I don't want to <laughs> get rid of it, okay? I, yeah. We need to ditch it. So if, if he called it a tra- – here's the thing. If he called it a paraphrase, my job would be much harder because one of the most ridiculous things and ob- like – obvious errors is the claims about the translation made by the translator. If it wasn't for those claims, a lot of the criticisms would change. We would have to go just through the text verse by verse. But when you go through the text verse by verse and you're saying, well, this has reversed the emphasis of the passage. This has added a new idea. It might be theologically true, but it's not in the passage. When you do that, people just tune out. 
Yep. And they don't listen. If he was to go, here's the strategy for Brian Simmons. If you're to go and you go, guys, I just misrepresented it slightly. They're telling me it's a paraphrase. I'm humble and teachable. I'm going to put it the passion paraphrase. Okay. The passion Bible. We'll call it the passion Bible. And it's a paraphrase now. And they go, see, problem solved. And I'm like, no, you still have all these weird teachings embedded in the text. You have all these alterations. And the people he's he's selling it to are just sadly not discerning enough to even notice the things that they're being, they're looking for a translation. If they, if it's called a paraphrase, they don't care, right? They're just looking for something that's useful for their preaching. It gives them preaching points. It makes them feel good. Um, so I, I hate to sound cynical, but yeah, I, well, I want, so if I was, the, if I want I, Bible gateway to take it off their website. I want you version app to say, you know, this just isn't a good representation of God's word. The, the same reason why we're not going to put the new world translation on our site, we're taking it off. Mm-hmm. Right. So if someone was to offer the pushback, then like, because you seem somewhat comfortable with the message Bible, right? So what's the major, major difference? Or are you not comfortable with it? Uh, No, I don't like it. I think I think it's a mistake, personally. (laughs) But but I say that um, uh, that's actually not the position of the scholars. Many of the scholars who like uh, Craig Blomberg writes and he goes, I love paraphrases. I like them. I think they're really good. I, I really like paraphrases. But then he goes on to explain how the Passion Translation needs a Surgeon General's warning about its potential hazards, right? Wow. So however strict you think I am, that's why I've made got these scholars to bring them in and have, and I've not filtered their views. I've not told them what they need to say, like they would listen to me anyway, right? Like I just said, look, write your paper and I'm just going to publish it. Um, and we're going to interview them and let them share their thing on my channel. But but yeah, so no, the Message Bible, I think, is also problematic. I think that it's problematic for different reasons. It's not as bad as the Passion Translation exactly. No, it's not. And it doesn't present itself, you know, like it's a translation. So can we can we go through some of the really problematic translations? I know we're actually, we're kind of cutting into extra time. So if we don't have time, let me know and we'll honor it. And we'll just kind of, I gotta go. we'll, we'll wrap up here. Uh, uh, he's, <laughs> he pulled he pulled a Craig Keener. Nobody was looking. He literally walked off set. Oh. Uh, I don't, did you watch we, Craig? We, we had Craig Keener do <laughs> an episode about the post-trib rapture and he yeah. fake raptured. He, he actually, he played a trumpet sound <laughs> and pretended he was flying away. <laughs> I can imagine uh, him being all giddy planning that. <laughs> oh, he was so excited about it. He, he thought it was so funny. And it was pretty funny. But um, anyway, uh, uh, yeah, if, if you have time, let's let's uh, discuss those sure. just those really problematic translations. Just as a few mm-hmm. examples, some of the most egregious ones uh, that you haven't already mentioned anyway. Yeah. Now, I, I want to say this. I'll give you guys a couple more examples to highlight. But um, this is where it's different than the New World Translation. So the New World Translation is like the Jehovah's Witness Translation. The, the JW's translation is like a woodenly literal, like clumsy, but very literal translation, right? It's on the bad side of too literal, except in places where the deity of Christ comes up, right? Because in those passages, they're going to change the text. So they, they radically alter very small sections of scripture. Otherwise, they have a clumsy wood, wooden word for word type translation. The Passion Translation is not like that. Um it radically alters like everything, but not heretically, right? It's, it's the, cum- not generally, it's the cumulative, the cumulative uh, changes mm. when you add up how radically different it is. You know, the book of Psalms is like 30% longer in the Passion Translation because of all the extra stuff he's added in there. Um, Andrew Sheed, who did a review of the book of Psalms, who was a legit scholar on the topic, said the Passion Translation made so many changes to Psalms that it's no longer 
poetry, it's prose. It's like it changed the genre of literature. Like how much do you have to wow. mess up a translation where the genre has changed? So really the issue here is it's so pervasive. The changes are so pervasive that there's like, a, it's like death by a million cuts. Um, but there are a few specific things. And I mentioned the anointed ones things. There's the activate your gift stuff. Um, he adds into Romans 12 that you have to activate your gifts. Let me, I'll read it to you here. Romans 12, six, God's marvelous grace. This is in, this is the verse that says, um, having diff, gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith. Here's his translation. God's marvelous grace imparts to each one of us varying gifts and ministries that are uniquely ours. Now, if you pay attention to translations, you realize he's adding a whole bunch of words and ideas that aren't in the text, but it goes on. He's just getting started. So if God has given you the grace gift of prophecy, you must activate your gift by using the proportion of faith you have to prophesy. And he has that term, activate your gift, uh, a few places in scripture, wrongly so. Another one is women issues related to gender issues. Um, he's very much like um, uh, egalitarian, not complementarian, in it, or so it seems. He so he just changes things like he re removes the word submit where it says like um, wives submit to your husbands in the scripture. Uh -huh. He just removes it. He just he won't translate uh -huh. it as submit. And so Ephesians five twenty four here's like the ESV. It says as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Okay, I'm not I'm not talking about overbearing and all this other stuff. I know our culture's freaking out about all these issues and that they're not even listening in some cases, but I, I just want an accurate translation from my Bible, okay? And Ephesians 5:24 in the Passion says, in the same way the church is devoted to Christ, let wives be devoted to their husbands and everything. So he translates the word submit as devoted. Now, oh. I checked a bunch of Greek resources on this. You can't translate that word devoted. That's just not what it means. Never. Yeah. Like, let me read to you. Here's one, two, three, four, five, six Greek lexicons on this word. I'll read you their definitions. To subject oneself, place oneself in submission. Here's another one. To submit to the orders or directives of someone. Here's another one. To obey, be obedient, bring under control. Here's another one. Be subject, submit to, obey, be under the authority of. NASB says that their dictionary says to pace or rank under, to obey. Finally, the analytical uh, lexicon of the Greek New Testament, to be submissive over, uh, to be submissive, to be over, or to subject oneself. So the the consistent you know, translation would just use the word submit. And then if, if you're egalitarian, you're, you're, you're just going to find a way to interpret that differently. You're not going to translate it differently. However, here's the crazy thing. A couple of verses earlier where it says, wives, um, submit to your husbands. He has a footnote that says the word for the Greek word for submit and mentions the word says is not in this verse. Now that's true. The Greek word for submits not in that verse. It's borrowed from the context of the previous verse where it says submitting to one another. But here's what's crazy. In his footnotes, he acknowledges that that's the Greek word for submit. But then in verse 24, when the Greek word shows up, he translates it. He, he chooses not to translate it to submit. Because he doesn't like the teaching. I mean, I, well, I can't think of another reason why he would do this. He's aware mm -hmm. of what it means. He just, he wants to get out of the text. He's also retranslated um, things like uh, Proverbs 31. He's retranslated Revelation to, to promote his theology. He's, he, his eschatology is translated into the book of Revelation. So does he and go, po does he go post-millennial with his translations? I would guess I, he's probably post-millennial. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, so Matthew 4, 4, here's another one, right? Um, 
Jesus says, as it is, or is it because, let me start over, I'm getting, getting ahead of myself. Uh, Matthew 4, 4 says, but he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Man will live by every word that comes from the mouth of God, right? Here's what Jesus says in the Passion Translation. The scripture says, bread alone will not satisfy, but true life is found in every word which constantly goes forth from God's mouth. Because oh. he's a continuationist, he's going to say that the word of God is what's constantly going out. He wants to move away from the scripture being the word of God here, which actually is what Jesus is talking about. He's talking, yeah, about, he's talking about the scripture clearly in context. But he wants it to be about continued revelation in the church. Wow. Right. So he so, adds to so, Oh, that hurts for us. As, I mean, as uh, everyone that's present is a continuationist, right? We believe yeah. that that, that, the, that yeah. the gifts of the Spirit have continued. Mm-hmm. But as honest critics, we we want to call balls and strikes, and we actually lose all of our authority um, to to make claims on the Bible. We lose all of our authority when we're talking to a Mormon. We lose all of our authority when someone comes down and says, "I've got a new translation of the Bible, and I'm going to create my group of uh, the- theology that people are going to come and meet and follow." If if we kind of look at this and turn a blind eye to it. We lose Amen. all ground and all theological right to just say, oh, uh, my, my views about women, my views about the church, my views about the gifts, I'm going to impose. And and it would be beneficial for me to like the Passion Translation. I could use it and wave it in my debates, and I could, I could, I could say, no, see what the Scripture says this here. It would help me, but that's not honest scholarship, um, and we lose theological ground and right uh, when we do stuff like that. It's, it's shameful. Um, mm-hmm. As a continuationist, right? Um, yeah, and I mean, and if and if we have integrity, we don't need to change the Bible to agree with our that's theology. Right. If that's our right. theology is right, why do I have to alter the text? That's it. Hey, uh, so, Pastor Mike, thank you so you much one, for. Yeah, I got to give you one last example. Last one, Please. yeah, do yeah. it. Do it. <laughs> All right, this is from Song of Solomon one fourteen, where in in most translations they just put the word in Getty, in Getty, which mm-hmm. is a location in Israel. Um, you can visit there actually still, it's really beautiful. It's by the, uh, on your way to the Dead Sea, I think. So the, um, the translation he offers is to interpret in Getty as the fountain of the lamb because he oh. thinks song of Solomon's an allegory about Jesus and the church. So he calls it the fountain of the lamb. So it's a <sighs> reference to Jesus, right? So this is what Tremper Longman, who is specialized in the song of Solomon and who did a review for my project, the passion translation, he says in one fourteen. Simmons says that in Getty means fountain of the lamb and obviously wants us to think this is some kind of allusion to Jesus as the lamb of God. Unfortunately for him, Getty means goat and the place name means fountain of the goat. Mm. Now, how many pastors who preach from the passion will be like, this is all about Jesus is a fountain of the lamb. And they're all excited about it. And it's the fountain of the goat. And the point isn't even the name of the place, the meaning of the name. It's the location that we should be thinking about. But it's good preaching I, point. I love any Remnant Radio episode that will bring to the surface that Song of Songs is not just an allegory. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a, I don't know. You probably don't know this. It's kind of a vested interest of ours to be like, it is a little uh, bit. Yeah. Oh. yeah. Well, you should read what a... you'll read. When I interview Trimper Longman, you'll enjoy that. <laughs> okay. okay. I'll be looking forward okay, to that. Good. No, okay. So I want to come back to this really quick, though, because you've touched on several genres. This is interesting to me. So he's... He's uh, he's turned the Song of Songs into allegory, which, hey, some people have that interpretation that it's allegorical. That's one thing. 
but he's built that into his translation. Uh, mm. You said he's done the same thing with Revelation and that apocalyptic genre. Uh, I mean, Revelation's like multiple genres, but still. Uh, then you mentioned the Psalms, that he's turned it into prose. Is there anything else like that, that he's... Genre skipped? Genre skipped, that he's changed or flipped the script on the genre? Um, I, I don't know if I have another example, uh, at least not off the top of my head, that I could say. Um, I know, well, I like, mean, for instance, pretty much Proverbs hit the 31. genres. I guess you've got wisdom literature remaining. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Proverbs, Proverbs 1, he turned it into um, a teaching about the church and evangelism when it's about mm. the virtuous woman. And so it's like she plants she plants a vineyard. That actually is the changing of genre. There really. it is. <laughs> Off the top of your head, you're even able to do it. Look. There you go. <laughs> anyway, hey, wow. you go, yeah. You go read the go read your favorite passage of the Bible that you know the best. Favorite yep. verse. Go read it in any normal translation, then read it in the Passion. And you'll see. Yeah. Wow. Hey. Thank you so much Mike, for coming yeah. on. We have such great respect for you and your channel. Uh, man, I'd really encourage, especially people who've watched the Bethel episodes, go on to Mike's channel, watch uh, his critiques of Bethel. I think that they're thoughtful. I think that they're, uh, they're I don't know, they're not they're not critical. And I think that's one of the things that we really need to, to be embracing as a Pentecostal charismatic church is to be able to say, look, uh, there are uh, people out there who are looking at us who, who just are thoughtful. They care about us and they're saying, hey, look, uh, you, you guys really need to consider the way that you say this, the way you articulate this, the way you think about this, because it'll better and enrich your life. There's lots of heretic hunters out there. There's lots of discernment ministries out there that just want to beat up the body of Christ and show them where they're wrong. Uh, Mike doesn't have that heart. He doesn't have that posture. Right. I'd really advise uh, Christians of, of all flavors, check out his channel, make sure to go and yeah. subscribe. And the solution to that isn't to accept everything. That's right. That's right. <laughs> like there's a way to, to, there is like discernment is important. And so yep. Mike, you just do a, a spectacular job at that. We think we love your channel. So Thank make you sure guys. you subscribe to, yeah, to Mike's channel and uh, subscribe to ours too. That'd be cool. That'd be great. And sign up for Patreon. Uh, yep. Help us out a little bit You for as little as $5 a month. You can help support the channel and make sure that you are helping us continue to create content like this. Yeah, we got videos on discerning discernment ministries up yeah. there on Patreon. <laughs> yeah, special uh, content. Lots of great stuff. So, uh, Pastor Mike, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, one last kind of plug. Uh, uh, tell people about your channel uh, and the I guess both channels uh, and how they get connected sure. with you. Sure. I mean, you know, the easiest way is you could um, just go to to watch my content is go to Mike Winger on YouTube. That's just my name. Just type it into YouTube. It'll pop up. That's for all my Christian focused theological content. If you're interested in YouTube training and doing your own YouTube channel, doing well at it and learning those kinds of skills. And you're especially if you're an evangelical Christian, go to YouTube tactics with Mike Winger. That's the name of the new YouTube channel. Mm. And um, and I'm actually doing trainings. I'm actually bringing people on. I'm going to do live streams where I actually walk them through, look at their channel and talk about tips and things they could change and do better. Cool. And um, then other than that, biblethinker.org is the website. And I guess that's about all I got. Cool. Well, thanks. Thanks again for coming on. Uh, mad respect. Uh, keep up the good work. Blessings. Thanks, guys. God bless you.
want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek and Hebrew. And you need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description, and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classrooms. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of REMNANT Radio.